Good morning, Four Oaks. We don't know each other. I'm Pastor Paul. I'm the pastor here. So glad you're either here in person, joining us online. And let me just say again, if you are new here, relatively new, you're just coming, checking things out. Maybe you moved here from from out of town or what have you. Um, It's a great time to be trying to dive into Four Oaks. There's a couple things I want to make you aware of. Number one, um, Saturday, August 28th, we are hosting something we call Welcome to the Family. And this is an opportunity where we want to connect with you, particularly if you're thinking about membership or you just want to know more about who we are, how to get plugged in involved. We talk about leadership and vision and our statement of faith and theology. And we, of course, entice you in with food, right? And we give you a free place to, to drop your kids off. And so if, you, if, if that sounds like something, hey, I can commit myself to, it's just one morning we end at noon promptly with a lunch together. Um, you can sign up at the um, hub outside. Now, if you're a regular at Four Oaks or you're already a member and we see you here getting a plate of food, okay, and dropping your kids off and trying to escape out the door, we're going to make you share your testimony to everybody, okay? I'm just going to tell you that's going to happen. We'll actually put you to work. But anyway, welcome to the family. A second thing to make you aware of, this is going to be the last Sunday we are in um, this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And we are going to be um, jump-starting a new sermon series next week on the book of Romans, preaching through the Romans called Rags to Righteous. And we'll be in that book for 18 to 24 months, give or take, or 18 to 24 years, whichever comes, whichever comes first. But we have unfinished business in Galatians chapter 5, where we have been walking through the fruit of the Spirit what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? We've, we've taken these nine attributes or spiritual virtues, and we've sort of just taken a deep dive into each of them one at a time. And we're to the very last one this morning, and we're going to talk about self-control. So if you have your Bibles and you're willing, able to stand and join in reading this together, I invite you to do so. We'll also have the words up here on the screen. So this is the text we've been camping out in. It should be pretty familiar. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Lord, we just freely confess when we come to this list of fruit that you are working in us, um, we have to say, God, we're not any of these things in ourselves. Um, We're not kind. We're not patient. We're not loving. We're not gentle. And Lord, no amount of self-help, self-improvement can make us so. Lord, this is only possible through the work of your spirit, a supernatural work that you take our our broken, dirty, sinful hearts and you make them clean. You make them into something new. And I pray, Father, that our study here in Galatians this summer will have a lasting 
reverberation into our lives, relationships, and ministries as we go forward from here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Take your seat. I read an article, I think, this week that said the letter P is maybe the, the, the pastor's favorite letter to use for alliteration. And I had to agree with that. So anyway, we're going, here's where we're going. We're going to talk about the priority of self-control, the posture of self-control, and finally, the practice of self-control. So let me just kind of frame this by talking about the priority of self-control, what we mean by that. You know, in The Hunt for Red October, it's a Cold War movie that pits the United States against the evil empire, if we can say that, the Soviet Union. And the U.S. commander on one of these ships um, is played by the actor Fred Thompson, of course, who was from my home state of Tennessee. And he makes this wry comment, right? And he says, son, the Russians have a plan for everything, even going to the bathroom, okay? Now, he said it a little differently than that, and I'll spare you that version, right? Now, the same could be said about the Apostle Paul when it comes to ministry. Paul did not do random. Paul did not lick his finger, stick it in the air, and say, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to do today. Everything Paul did was with a purpose. He never did anything happenstance. And I think we see this even in the way that he lists out these fruit of the Spirit for us. Remember the first week we talked about this idea that Paul lists love first because Paul tells us elsewhere in his letters that it's the chief virtue. And it's the chief virtue because it centers around the sum of the law. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So that makes complete sense why he would put love at the beginning of this list. But I also think that it makes complete sense why he would put self-control at the end of this list, right? You see, there's a very real sense in which self-control is the virtue or the attribute that holds all of these other attributes together. It, it's, it's sort of woven into the fabric. It brings them together. It activates them. It puts them into practice. So in other words, you can be striving to be kind and patient and loving, but all are dependent in part, right, on our ability to master ourselves, our ability to say no, or sometimes our grace to say yes. And I think it's this reason Paul puts self-control as the last of the list to say, let me tell you the spiritual value and quality that's going to strike you at the very depths of your heart, in that very place where your will, your flesh, is competing with the work of my Holy Spirit inside of you. And let's look, let me give you an example of how I think this works. Look at Acts 24, and we'll flash the, the text up here for you in a second. So, Acts 24, verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So let's set the stage here, Four Oaks. 
Paul is imprisoned and he is awaiting trial. And over this region of Judea is a proconsul. And the proconsul was one of the most powerful positions in all the Roman Empire, second only to Caesar himself. And this man, Felix, was a very important person, and he was married to a Jewish woman. And maybe whether to placate her or humor himself, we don't really know. He had Paul come in, who was a prisoner. And remember, Paul was probably the most infamous Christian figure at that time. He would have Paul in, and they would have these spiritual conversations, right? They would talk about religion. But what's interesting here is that it says that in the midst of these conversations, it says, Felix becomes alarmed. And it literally means he experienced exceeding terror. Something Paul said totally scared him out of his wits. He was so discombobulated, he said, uh, thank you, Paul. Go to your room, okay, and play your video games or whatever. I'll call you when it's time to come back, right? That, that was the sense. Now, what was it that Paul said that, that struck so at the heart of Felix and pierced him? Well, it says here that he talked about judgment and righteousness and self-control. Now, judgment and righteousness, Felix would have been very familiar with that. That was part of the common language spoken by Greeks and Romans about their gods, mythology, this idea of there being a judgment or righteousness or rewards or punishments. That, that was old hat. But what wasn't old hat was this idea of self-control. You see, the word literally means to master one's appetites, to be temperate to have jurisdiction over the self, to be moderate, to temper, okay, your appetites. And let's understand something. Felix was not a man accustomed to curbing his appetites. See, he didn't have to exercise self-control because next to Caesar, he could have anything. He could, do, he could have anyone he wanted. He could do anything he wanted. Unchecked power, food, drink, sex, women, recreation, all of it. And the reason Felix was alarmed is because he understood all too well what Paul was driving at. In order for him to come to know Jesus Christ, he was going to have to, to have a life and death struggle with his own will. And giving that will up and saying, it's not my will, but it's your will, Lord, and guys, that, that, that's what being a Christian is all about. It's having the claims of Christ speak into your heart over your whole life and understanding we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. Just as we sang this morning, we're, yes, we're free from sin, but now we're bound to Christ. And he makes claim on every area of our life. He is calling us through his spirit to have our will molded and shaped by him. And that's, that, that's going to be a constant battle in the flesh where our, our flesh is going to resist it, but the spirit is working. And Felix looked at that, understood the claim that says, no, thank you. How about for you this season? Is, is self-control, is, is that a prominent category for you? How have you thought about that in relationship to 
all the areas of your life and the different things that God has called you to because it is a spiritual priority that requires a specific posture. That brings us to our second point. In 1 Corinthians 9, here Paul gives us a living, breathing exhortation and example of self-control from the Old Testament. And he talks about what it looks like for us to adopt that posture and begin to practice it in our lives. So let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9. Again, the text will be on the screen. It's kind of a longer passage, but remember, this is a, an exhortation and an illustration of self-control. Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises what? Self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my, discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now listen. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So in this passage, Paul has been addressing the believers in Corinth about his ministry. And and Paul is very clear. He has one his, his driving heart's desire and impulse in his life is, I want to honor Christ. This gospel was given to me by Christ. This mission was given to me. My life has been given to me. It's a stewardship, and I want to finish my race. I want to be faithful in my race. How many people do you know who started off so well spiritually, right, but dropped out of the race disqualified themselves in some measure. And this is Paul's backdrop. And he's using, um, to talk about his race, he, he likens his ministry, his faithfulness, his call to an athletic competition. And this would have been really um, easily understood by his original readers because in Corinth, every two years, they would host these biannual games called the Ismithian Games. And they were second only to the Olympics in Athens in terms of fame and notoriety. And this is where some of the, the greatest athletes in the known ancient world would come together and congregate, and they would race on foot. Now understand, 
Ancient athletes did not compete for money. They did not compete for endorsements. They didn't compete to have their face on the Wheaties box. Say none of that, right? They competed, wait for it, a pine wreath, okay? A, a thing of foliage that was, I don't know what it looked like, but it would rest on top of the head. That's the only thing they were going to get, and only one would get it. But it was, it, was, it was treasured. It was prized. When you had, see, nobody had one of those. The only way to get one of those was to win this race, to compete and win the prize. Guys, no participation trophies in the Smithian game, sorry, okay? N- nothing like that. In other words, you couldn't just show up and expect to be competitive. This was something that took intense training, preparation, dedication. If you watched the Olympics this past couple of weeks, you know that no sport is a better example of this than women's gymnastics, right? Everything about that competition screams, don't try this at home, every, every bit of it. And Simone Biles, who is clearly the greatest gymnast in history, and her story is remarkable. She's been doing gymnastics since she was four, for 20 years. She's been to multiple Olympics, which is very rare for a gymnast, multiple medals. All the more remarkable because at 24 years old, in gymnastics world, she's ancient, right? She's, she's over the hill, but here she's doing all these crazy things. Why are there not more gymnasts who are older? Because when you're a teenager, the frontal part of your lobe, the underdeveloped part, the part that helps you assess risk, that helps you assess danger, is not fully formed. This is why your kids are constantly doing stupid things, parents, okay? It's not their fault. It's the, it's the frontal lobe thing. But, but there's a very real sense when gymnasts are teenagers and they're doing all these crazy flips, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they know, they know how to do it. But they're not thinking about what they're doing. It just comes naturally. It's what you do. But when you get over 20, and Simone had this happen, she began to think, right? She's in the air, and she's starting to think, I'm actually doing things that if I land wrong, I could hurt myself permanently, and oh my gosh, I better drop out. And that's what happened, okay? That's what happened. Paul says, you have to run in such a way as to obtain the prize. Look at verse 25. This is, the, this is the pivot point of this whole section. Every athlete exercises self-control, and I love this, in all things, right? What a claim to be an Olympic or professional level athlete. It makes a claim on every area of your life, and in order to run after it, a certain posture is required. Now, hopefully you're starting to... It's, kind of coming into view here, oh, Paul's using this as a metaphor for me, for my Christian walk, for my race, my faithfulness, my ministry, my marriage, my obedience. And he uses two words to describe how you and I, our posture towards our lives and our Christian faith. And the first one is box, and the second word is discipline. Now, in the original language, box means literally to contend with the fist, okay? To, to, to be on guard, to be ready, to be wary. In other words, it, it literally means put your spiritual dukes up. Don't venture, venture out into the world, into the arena unprepared or, 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 or naive to the fact that Satan is a roaring lion. 
And he is prowling, and he is seeking to conquer and to devour. Satan would love it if some of you just would not exercise self-control in certain areas of your life. Oh, he would love that. And Paul is saying, this has to be the, the posture. You have to venture forth. You have to get your dukes up. You have to be aware. Get your head on a swivel. Like, check your sex. You know, all those sorts of things. That's, that's the meaning of box. Now, discipline actually means something a little more offensive. And by that, I mean, if getting your dukes up is, is kind of your defensive posture, then, then to discipline, it literally means to hit with the fist under the eye, okay? So kids, try that one home. Say, if you don't do this, I'm going to hit with the fist under the eye or whatever, okay? That's what, it, that's what it means to give somebody a black eye. And here, Paul, of course, is talking about what it means to be on the offense, He's talking about what it means to actually train in godliness. And just like every athlete training has the tools, the nutrition, the exercises, the weights, all the things that they do, the believer is just the same. But he has now given us his word. He's now given us prayer. He's given us the fellowship of the body. And Paul says, you've got to employ the weapons of this spiritual life, and don't be naive, friend. Get your dukes up, yes, but you've got to be moving forward. Remember, you heard me say this before, there is no standing still in the Christian life. There is no neutral. You're going one direction or the other. You know, right now I'm teaching our youngest child how to drive, and this will be number four that dad has, and, and if they, I was going to say something that was, I'm going to just self-edit right here, okay? Let me just say this, okay? Um, and it, I've taught all of our kids to drive, and one of, the, but one of the consistent themes, consistent lessons, right, is that when you're pulling out across lanes of traffic, right, when you commit, okay, when you start going, what do you need to do? You don't lollygag in the intersection. You don't look around and say, hey, there's so-and-so, look at that. No, you like move through, put your foot on the gas, same dynamic spiritually. Same dynamic spiritually. Paul says to walk in the spirit requires a certain posture. Christian, let me just ask you a question. Are you aware? See, a big, a big takeaway for some of you might be this morning is that you're, you just have a growing awareness that you're in a race, that you're in a battle, you're in a war, you're in a great struggle. If you're not struggling in your life right now, you're not doing it right, right? When you, guys, understand, when you walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is making war with the sin that's in your heart. And if you don't feel that tension, if you don't feel that give and take, that agitation that's spurring on, you have to wonder, hmm, am I walking really in the Spirit? Or am I walking in the flesh? And so I say that to want to encourage you, if you're struggling this morning, if there's some area of sin um, you're looking at these fruits of the Spirit, and you say, Pastor Paul, I'm not kind. I'm not patient. I don't have self-control. On one hand, be encouraged, right? God's Spirit's working in you. There's a, there's a struggle. There's a battle that, that's waging war in your soul. But Paul says, you have, to, you have to have this posture. You need to understand this. Because look at verse 12. When temptation comes, that's not the time to get ready. When temptation, it's... it's when, 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 the, when the opposing army invades, that's not the time to have the draft, right? You want to prepare ahead of time. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, take heed lest you fall. 
Self-control requires a posture of readiness. Because just think about this for a second. I don't know what this looks like for you, but in your mind's eye, if you had to pick one metaphor for where you are spiritually right now, what would it be? One metaphor. One picture. Maybe, maybe it'd be a picture of, of you on your knees and a posture of prayer and humility and asking God to work. Maybe it would be a posture where both of your fingers are stuck inside your ears and you don't want to listen. Hear, see, speak, no evil. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you would characterize it as just a hammock. I'm in a hammock. I'm chilling. Nothing bothers me. I'm chill. I don't know what that metaphor is for you. But Paul says the metaphor for the believer who wants to exercise self-control is this. To be active, to have a posture, offense and defense. Okay, let's go to the last point. Let's talk about the practice of self-control. And here we're making our way down and we want to get super practical here when we talk about this. Because what Paul does is that he talks about self-control, right? He talks about the posture that we have to have to be self-controlled. And now he wants to give us an example from the Old Testament of a people who did not exercise self-control, who did not have a posture of readiness. And he looked down at 1 Corinthians 10, 6. He talks about the case in point of the Israelites in the wilderness. He says they were all running their race. They started off so well, didn't they? They come out in victory. They plundered the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're eating manna every day for breakfast and dinner. But guess what? They fell short. They abandoned God. They all died in the wilderness. They walked away. They hardened their hearts. They were destroyed by the destroyer. 23,000 in one day. And we have to say, Pastor Paul, what happened? What happened? Self-control happened or didn't happen. Look at verse 7. It says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's how Paul characterizes what was happening there in the wilderness. So first of all, when it says they ate and drank and rose up to play, they're not talking about family night with board games. That's not what we're talking about right here. And by the way, I am the king of Scrabble. There is no dispute about this at all. Okay, come at me. Not that kind of play. We know this is just a shorthand way where Paul is describing debaucherous living. And when I say debaucherous, I'm meaning the whole atmosphere of party, gluttony, drunkenness, sexual immorality, being filled up with the flesh. Now understand something. All of those things that I just mentioned, for example, food and drink and sex, all of those are a part of God's good creation. We, we are not aesthetics here. The, the, we just learned in 1 Timothy, nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, right? These are gifts to be enjoyed in the proper context and the proper proportions. However, as we prayed this morning, when a good gift becomes your ultimate good, it becomes a very bad thing. And I want to talk about a couple of these areas because I, I, want, to, I want, to, want to give you a sense of what self-control does and does not look like on the basic decision points of our life. And I do want to specifically talk about what it talks about in this text. I want to use the example of alcohol, okay? And you can put anything else in here that you want to. 
any area of your life that you're struggling with self-control. Well, let me say this. Let me tell you how this um, unpacks and what this looks like. First of all, the scriptures in many, many places uses beautiful imagery and metaphor to talk about the fruit of the vine, that it's given as a gift of God, that it's to be enjoyed as part of his creation, that one day at the wedding feast of the lamb, we're all going to be enjoying that bottle of Cabernet or whatever it's going to be, right? It's going to be the best wine. We know Jesus did his very first miracle in Cana doing what? Turning water into wine, not grape juice, because they, nobody would have cared if he had turned it into grape juice, right? So, so we're not talking, we, we understand the positive affirmations that the scripture makes about this, where wine could be the symbol of life and of celebration and community and connection and friendship. And those are all ways where we can rightly use the gift that God has given us. Now, let me say this, because you knew this was coming, right? For as many times as Scripture speaks positively about partaking of what I call covenant beverages, that's code, right? All right. It just as many times warns us of its misuses and abuses and dangers, all right? Now, I want you to listen to this very familiar passage, and in light of the study we've just had, I want you to, to think about this. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be, what? Filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, Paul says, when the Spirit is, when you're filled with the Spirit, and walking in the Spirit, it pumps out every pore of your body. It colors everything. It empowers everything. By the same token, when your body is full, okay, of alcohol, wine, for example, um, there are other impulses that seek to escape. Now, when Paul says, don't get drunk, don't think about 21st century state of Florida alcohol driving statutes, right? Don't think about, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I, I, my breath just registered point whatever on the scale, and I was okay. I'm not legally drunk. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about self-control. And are we partaking in the gifts of God that proclaim, this isn't about the gift or even about my freedom. This is about Christ. And, and you can apply this to any of God's gift in any area of your life. And let me just say this morning, while we're on the topic of alcohol, and I, the text brought it up, not me, right? That some of us might not be enjoying God's good creation in the way God designed and created it. Some of us, and I'll say us, might just be drinking a little too much. Might just be looking forward to it a little too much. We just might be saying things to ourselves like, I can't really relax and power down and chill out without this or that and the other. And it's like, no, 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 Christian, you're missing the point. It's a matter of self-control. Paul says, I box, I discipline my body. There is a way to do that in relationship to whether it's alcohol, sexuality, food, recreation, leisure, vacation. It's all the same principle. What controls you? What animates you? 
What gets you up in the morning? When you're down, what do you think about? When you're not motivated, how do you try to motivate yourself? Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Now let's go back to the text for a second. We're almost done. Look in verse 8. The lack of self-control by the Israelites cost them dearly. And Paul says, do not indulge in sexual immorality like they did where 23,000 were struck down. I want you to think about this. This is, a, this is a story from the book of Numbers, Numbers 25, where the Israelites were explicitly commanded not to take foreign wives. But here they, thinking they're wise in their own eyes, not exercising self-control, went and intermarried with the Moabite women, brought them into the tent. They defiled the camp. And God says 23,000 were struck down, and unless Moses' intercession, how, who knows how many more it would be. Real judgment can happen over a lack of self-control. Now, let, let, hear what I'm saying and hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. Let me say this. Exercising self-control in and of itself won't save you. You could be amazingly disciplined in all areas of your life, Okay, and not know Christ and be lost eternally. So exercising self-control in itself won't save you. But you know what? You won't be saved without it. That there is a sense, Paul makes this very clear in Galatians 5, right? The people who are doing these things, drunkenness, sexual immorality, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It means that when the Spirit is living within us, that he is slowly methodically taking our will and shaping it to his. And in those natural fleshly impulses we have, the spirit begins to take ground and capture those things in our heart. And we're never going to get all the way there, this side of glory. We're not. That's why we're going to always struggle in this life. But it is a progressive struggle where as God is molding and shaping our hearts, it's evidence that we belong to him. It's evidence that the spirit is alive and active in us. Self-control will not save you, but you won't be saved apart from it. Nobody will. You have to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk in the power of the spirit. Because let me close by saying this. One of the things that we've said from the beginning in this series of the fruit of the spirit is that these are not a set of moral resolutions where you were to now go about setting your, setting your, your resolutions, setting your goals. You know, I'm not patient. Today I'm going to be patient. I'm not kind. I'm going to be kind from now on, Pastor Paul. I really mean it this time. That's, that's the wrong way to approach the fruit of the spirit. See, the fruit of the spirit aren't the goal. They're the byproduct of the goal. And as you and I come to tend that personal relationship with Jesus Christ through his spirit who lives in our heart, that's what it means to walk in the spirit. I'm having a dialogue. I'm having a relationship. I'm, I'm understanding who Christ is from his word. I'm praying. I'm meditating. I'm around believers. I'm in a posture of readiness to receive all that he has for me through the spirit. And Jesus says, as you do that, I slowly begin continue to take territory in your heart. Sometimes that's, that's painful, isn't it? It's, some of you are in a life and death struggle in some area of your life over who's going to have jurisdiction in your heart. And Jesus says, 
you're hurting, and I am gentle and lowly. And when any part of my body is hurting, I call to you to come to me. Church, do you know who obviously perfectly embodied self-control? Who was the most self-controlled human being that ever lived? It was Jesus, of course. Jesus on that cross, he was being utterly accused, maligned, bit, beaten, tortured, murdered, and he was completely innocent of all charges. At any moment, Jesus could have called down, he tells us this, his angels, the Father would send the angels and totally free him. At any time, he could have come down from that cross. But Jesus says, no, 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 not my will, Father, but your will. And through the exercise of self-control, I want to give my people life. So church, be encouraged to know that your elder brother, Jesus, has gone before you. He's endured the cross. He's despised the shame. And now he's working in your heart through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray.